Well, John chapter 7, would you turn over there? John chapter 7, and let me go ahead and read our text. We come to part 2 on the Lord's authoritative teaching. We'll be looking at John 7, 18 through 24, but let me just begin reading for you at 7, 14, John 7, 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, and he began teaching, and the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, you are angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. The scene here in chapter 7 is the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And you remember that he had stayed in Galilee initially, discipling his disciples, if you will. And then after about seven months of, for the most part, privately teaching his disciples, he goes to Jerusalem. And uh, he wasn't going to go. Remember earlier in chapter 7, he said his time had not come. But then after he sent the disciples, he goes in private. Would you look at it in 7.9? After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he went up, not publicly, but in private. So he didn't go when they wanted him to go publicly in a declaration of who he was, but he goes privately without the fanfare. And when he went to Jerusalem, he went for a purpose. In fact, look again at verse 14. It says about the middle of the feast, so it's the week-long Feast of Tabernacles. It's in the middle of the feast. Jesus went up into the temple and he began, it says there, teaching. And he began to teach, and that's what we have in our text in John chapter 7 and 14 through 24. Our Lord is teaching. Now, crystal clear in the Gospels, there is one fundamental dimension that backs his teaching or marks his teaching, and it's namely this it's his authority. It's his authority. In fact, the question would be raised where did he get this type of authority? authority. In fact, as he began to teach, look at verse 15. It says, the Jews therefore marveled. In fact, this is a, a somewhat of a common occurrence in the Gospels. When our Lord taught, the people that heard him marveled. And it uses that word, marveled. In fact, in Matthew 7, 28, when he was teaching, you remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Well, it says there in 728 of Matthew, for he was teaching them as one having authority. 
And then it says, and not as the scribes. Remember, the scribes used to just quote people very much into the tradition. The rabbi said this, one rabbi said this, this rabbi said this, and they were very committed to the tradition. And Jesus said, I say therefore to you. And so when he taught, he had authority. He wasn't teaching as the scribes. In fact, in Matthew 13, 54, he's teaching there, and they were astonished, the text says. Where did this man get this wisdom? So you have these statements in the Scripture all over. In fact, in Luke 4, 32, I like this one. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. That's what marked his teaching. Any of you who are in the teaching profession would understand that in a grand way. It marked his teaching. Now, I want to be clear to you, when it says that they marveled, and when it says that they were astonished, I don't want you to think that they were marveling like this guy is tremendous. And I don't want you to say, think like when it says, where did this man get this wisdom? You almost have to be careful. You have to be clear to look at it in the opposite way. When our Lord taught, when he taught with authority, when they marveled, when they were astonished at his teaching, they were taking offense at what he said. It wasn't as though they believed him. It was as though, I can't believe he's actually saying that. In fact, just to prove that, look back at John 3 just for a moment. Let me just show you a couple of places where they marveled at his teaching, and you'll understand what I meant by that statement. But remember, he's teaching Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do you remember he said in 3.3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then glance down at chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. They were marveling, but remember Nicodemus was thinking, how can he go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And so Jesus recognizes that they're marveling, but they're not marveling out of affirmation. They're marveling, if you will, out of incredulity. They couldn't believe that he was saying the things that he was saying. Look over at John chapter 4 in verse 27. Remember, he's talking to the woman at the well, and in 426, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, it was quite a statement, am he. And what, what he's saying there, back in verse 25, the antecedent, she said, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And then look at 427. Just then the disciples came back, and look, note the word, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. I mean, they didn't come back and go, hey, isn't that great? He's reaching out to a woman. They couldn't believe it. They're marveling that he was talking down, sitting down, talking with a woman. They marveled when he said, you must be born again. And so you understand they were taking offense. Look over at John chapter 5 and verse 28. You remember there he was talking in verse 27, 527, he has given him... In other words, God has given him, Christ, the authority to execute judgment. Quite a statement. Because he is the Son of Man. And Jesus told him in, in verse 28, do, mar do not marvel at this. In other words, don't wonder about this. This is a true authoritative statement. 
And so now you can come over to chapter 7. And I noted there that in verse 15, the Jewish people were marveling. But look at verse 21 when he said to them in 721, I did one work and you all marvel at it. And there he's talking about, the, I did one work, he's talking about chapter 5. I'll explain it later when he healed the paralytic man at the pool. And they did one work, and Jesus said, you're marveling at it. But if you go back to John chapter 5, they were trying to kill him because he healed that man on the Sabbath. In fact, they're marveling. You understand, I'm just trying to orient our thinking. It's not like they're thinking, hey, this guy is awesome. This guy is time man of the year. This guy is teacher of the year in the Kingsburg San Joaquin Valley School District. Oh no, they're marveling. They're, they're stunned, if you will. They're astonished at what he says. And you say, well, well, why is that? Well, look at verse 15. They said there, how is it, and remember, read it this way in this tone. How is it that this man, they never want to refer to his name, and I want you to catch that going through. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? In other words, he's never been trained. He's never gone to one of the rabbinical centers. He's never been under one of the famous rabbis. And they're thinking he has such command of the scriptures. We might even say today that he never went to seminary. He never got his degree. He was never ordained. But understand when you see verse 15, how is it that this man has learning? Literally, it's kind of a funny verse. How is it that this man has grammata? How is it that this man has letters, literally, in the Greek? But it just means here, he's never been to one of the rabbis. He's never been, if you will, to one of the schools. And so what this is, understand in 15, this is an absolute challenge to his credentials. This is an absolute challenge to his teaching. How is it this man has learned? His teaching, in essence, is what they're saying, is his own private interpretation, and you should not listen to him. In fact, I mentioned that in Jewish thinking, no one possessed, beloved, in their mind, inherent authority. It was always secondary. It was always, if you will, as I've said, indirect and authority was always passed down and conferred from one rabbi to another rabbi through what their ordination process. And so here's the question, beloved. Where did he get his authority? That, that's the question. Where did he get this authority? And what our Lord does in 14 through 24 is give us four divine distinctives of his teaching that prove him to be the Son of God, and these distinctives will demand a response from you. And we've looked at the first two. Last week we looked at the source of his teaching reveals his divine authority. Look, there, here's the source. He does have a source. He said in verse 16, my teaching, do you see that, is not mine. It's his who sent me. In other words, I'm going to tell you where I got it. It is not mine. The source of my authority is God. Another the Father. I've not been taught by a rabbi. I've not gone to a famous rabbinical school. I have been taught, if you will, I have learned from God. In fact, it's just declaring that what Jesus says, the Father says. Look over just real quick in John chapter 12. I thought this is such a, an illustrative statement on the source of his authority. Do you remember this in John 12, 49? When 
what an what a amazing statement. He said, for I, in 1249, have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. So, beloved, the source of his authority is not some homespun personal philosophy, but it is a revelation from God. He doesn't need the authority of rabbinical training. He doesn't need the authority of other rabbis. He profoundly claims God as the source of his authority. Now, the source of his authority led to, secondly, the test. Look back in John. Amazing verse. We looked at that last week. You can listen online. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. He gave him a test. And the test is this, that the one doing God's word or God's will, if you will, the one who does his will, think about this, is the one who knows God's word. In other words, what Jesus is saying, here's a divine distinctive. My source is not only the Father, but the test of his teaching reveals his divine authority. And the test of his teaching is the one doing God's will. In other words, everyone whose teaching stands or falls by the fruit it produces in the lives of those who are changed by it. So I'm at a funeral on Friday. One of my classmates died a couple weeks ago, which is a little sobering. She's just, she's a nurse in excellent health and a blood clot goes to her heart and instantly died. And so I did the funeral, me and another friend, they kind of call on us as the pastors of our class. And I saw one of the guys uh, that I went to school with and he was a stud athlete. He was the fullback on the football team, strong. And I could just tell as I looked at him, I just knew that he wasn't walking with the Lord. And so I just went up and talked to him and found out he's far from the Lord. And he explained why he's far from people and that it wasn't real. And it's not real necessarily to other people. It's not real to him. It's just not working. And I had my Bible because I'm doing the funeral. And I opened right up here to John chapter 7. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. I let him know, just gently, he's a friend, you need to submit your life to God. Your life will get straightened out as you submit your will to his will. And when you do that, you will know whether the teaching comes from God or not. So you're thinking, wow, that's pretty bold. No, I'm not thinking that's bold. I'm standing there with my Bible and I'm telling him that. But he is not going to find the source of truth outside of his obedience to the will of God. And so Jesus says, here's the test. And the test of my teaching that reveals the divine source of my authority is that people who do God's will will know his will. And that's just what this is, the, is, is pointing to. G. Campbell Morgan, the famous preacher, said this, when men are holy completely consecrated to the will of God and want to do that above everything else, they find out that Christ's teaching is divine and it is the teaching of God. 
In other words, you've got to commit to it. You say, well, why do some people I share with walk away from it? Why do my children walk away? Why do my grandchildren not follow? Listen, until somebody's serious about the word of God and wants to put their life under his life and under his word and under his will, they will wander and meander to a number of things, pursuing philosophies and false religions, never finding satisfaction. But Jesus said, here's the divine source. There are people who follow my teaching. That's just what he's saying. It's an amazing verse. I'm at a soccer game yesterday, and I'm sitting there watching uh, the Kingsburg High School soccer team play. My girls are on the team, and I'm sitting right next to somebody, and instantly, maybe because of my own background, she's not there with family. She's not there with friends. She's in a pair of athletic clothes, and I say, uh, what team do you scout for? And so she was a scout. I was right. My wife said, how did you know that? I go, she just, she had to look, Patty, you know. And uh, she's scouting players on both teams. And it was marvelous to hear her testimony. She got staved out of playing soccer in Fresno at college and came to Christ at the end of her college years. And now she spends her life serving the Lord. But she went on to say, my whole life changed. See, that's what happens when people get connected to Christ. When they submit, repent, and believe, their whole world changes. And you can see the joy that's come on her to be able to serve in that capacity as a coach. And she was recruiting that day, but also to serve her Lord at a local church in Fresno. It was very, very encouraging. So Jesus is just saying, here's the test. is people's lives are changed by my teaching. They do the will of God, and when they do the will of God, they know internally. And I mentioned last week, that is a work of the Holy Spirit's. That when the Holy Spirit comes a hold of your life, you begin to recognize that what you read is not the word of man, it is the word of God. And then as you read and then you obey God's will, look what it says again in verse 17. It says there, if, anyone, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. So only those who believe in Christ will recognize the truth of his teaching. Which, which by the way, just from me to you, it's an interesting way. We think we need to reason with every young person. We need to think that in every evangelism, there's something that we need to tell people. We sit with people. I'm looking in the eyes of this man who was a stud fullback in high school. I don't need to reason with where he is. I need to just tell him that he needs to submit his life to God and his life will turn around. I just think we always think we have to provide the solutions. Maybe sometimes we just need to say, listen, if you know the truth, and this young man that I'm talking about, his dad is a pastor, He's pastored all of his life. And I looked at him and I said, you've been given an incredible baton. You need to obey what you know to be true. But as he is, he's meandering. And you pray for him. I pray that God use just my short words to love him and, and to encourage him and to tell him that he has the truth and he's been taught the truth and he needs here, therefore, to obey the truth. But listen, there's a third divine distinctive. There's the source. There's the test of his teaching that reveals his divine authority. But let's just call this third divine distinctive the motive of his teaching. The motive of his teaching. Look at verse 18. Here it is, the motive. He said, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Okay, But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The Lord reveals two kinds of teachers here, does he not, in the motive of the teaching. He reveals a false teacher, and then he reveals a true teacher. 
Let me take you first to the false teacher. Look at verse 18. He says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Now, he's just saying, here's the mark of a false teacher. There's a lot I could say here, but I refrain. But he's talking about a false teacher. There's people who stand up. There's people who declare to speak for God. Here in this text, though, they're speaking on their own authority. And here's the motive that marks them. They seek their own glory. Now, beloved, it's always been this way. There's false teachers more alive today than maybe at any time in the history of the church. But that's not new to us. Jeremiah the prophet in 1414, I think these will come up if you want to write them down. The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. Here God says to Jeremiah the prophet, I did not send them, nor did I command them, nor did I speak to them. They are prophesying to you, here it is, a lying vision. And they are prophesying, he said there, the deceit of their own minds. There are false prophets then in Jeremiah's time. There are false prophets now. Their books are in the bookstore. They claim to speak for God, but the problem is they're not speaking for God. They're speaking on their own authority, and they're usually, in this manner, seeking their own glory. Here, Jeremiah says they're prophesying, prophesying to you a lying vision and the deceit of their own minds. Jeremiah 23, 16 says, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, he's showing you a false teacher. He's speaking on his own authority. And beloved, you know that everybody who claims to speak for the Lord isn't always speaking for the Lord. And, and it's no better seen and depicted with all the people who say, I now have a vision from the Lord. Really? You have a vision from the Lord. How'd you get that vision? Was it an audible voice? Did he speak to you? Did he tell you this? Should I add it to the end of Scripture? You just go on. There's a number of people. In fact, this is the cliche thing today to speak on their own minds, if you will. But it's not from the mouth of the Lord. Jeremiah 23, 21. God says through Jeremiah, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. In 23:26, how long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own hearts? This is just typical in Jeremiah's day. It is true in our day. Jeremiah 23:32, God says, "Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams." You think is that today? I hear that stuff every week. I had a dream. And the Lord said this to me, weekly, not, not stuff I read, stuff I look, I have a dream. And it makes it sound very spiritual. And, and, and so people have these dreams and they put them on par with scripture. And so he just says to them, it's the seed in their own heart. I'm, I'm against, he said, those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. There's a lot of self-stylized people doing things for the Lord. Beware, be, be careful. There's false teachers. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, their motive. Look again at the 18. It says, the one who speaks on his own authority. Did you see this? Here's what they do. They seek their own glory. In other words, they're out 
for, they do it for themselves. They're seeking their own glory. Look over at John chapter 5 in verse 44. He said to the Jewish people, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I mean, this is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In other words, people do that in practice. False teachers do that. They speak so that they would receive glory for themselves. In fact, when Jesus said, he said, for then you will have their, your reward in full from your Father who is in heaven. He says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, they have received their reward. When you pray, he said, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Here's why that they may be seen by others. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And he, he said it three times. You say, why does he say that? He just says, listen, if that's their bottom line, to be seen by others, to be spiritual, they've received their earthly reward in full. If that's all they're about, then they got what they're looking for. In fact, he's, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they... They think they will be heard for their many words. And Jesus said, do not listen to them. Beloved, if you could just cast this picture here in Jewish life, and especially of these false teachers, the synagogue was, a, was the center of everything. It was the center of community life. And it would not be uncommon at all for someone to be called on publicly, if you will, to pray or to pray publicly. A man could easily succumb to the temptation of praying up to the congregation. Just put a couple of appropriate cliches in there. The right tone inflections in there. The serious tones in there. Well-pitched fervency in there. And it could digress and become tools to win the approval of men. In fact, the Talmud, which is a Jewish writing, said that people, if you can picture this, would stand three hours in public places, praying. In other words, it's not praying because you love God, but because you love yourself. Behind the piety lurks pride. In fact, it said this of the Pharisees, and you were, again, we're illustrating here the false teachers. The Pharisees in John 12, 43 said they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You show me a false teacher, I'll show you somebody who is sent by himself. He's speaking on his own authority, and his motive in it is for what he can gain from it. Jesus said to the Pharisees in, in Matthew 23, 5, they do all their deeds, he said here, to be noticed by men. I mean, this could be a false teacher. It could be just fake religion. And In fact, in a very biting word in Luke 20, 47, he was speaking of the religious leaders. He said of those leaders that they devour widows' houses and for a pretense, they make long prayers. In other words, they're just in it for the show of it. The true story is told of an Eastern ascetic holy man who covered himself with ashes as a sign of humility and regularly, this Eastern ascetic holy man would sit on a prominent street corner in his city. And when the tourist coming through that city would ask permission to take his picture, the mystic 
would arrange his ashes to give the best image of destitution and humility. Oh, wait, no, go over there. You got the HD on and you got the light. I mean, it's just, it's afraid, right? It's, it's a fear, a fearful thing. I'm afraid that much of religion is simply the arranging of ashes to make a good impression. It, become, it becomes ashes for approval, ashes for the applause of men. Beloved, listen, when you find a false teacher, you find somebody there on their own, not speaking. They're not speaking the word of God. They're speaking lies. They're speaking their own vision. They're speaking dreams. They're not bringing people back to the source of the book. And then the motive that guides them is what it gives to them. In fact, I'm saying nothing about that the number one motive of a false teacher is that they're greedy for gain. You look all throughout the Old and New Testament, a false teacher spoke for a price. He spoke for gain, and they were greedy for gain. Their motive was for themselves. Now, certainly, we understand, yes, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may, what? See your good works, but it doesn't finish there, does it? That they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father who is in heaven. So, beloved, our deeds must be visible so that God will be glorified, yet never so visible as to glorify yourself. But a false teacher, he's marked by this, by his own authority. He's marked by his own pride. He does everything to be seen for the approval of men. Carson put it this way, the great commentator, he said, The goal of pleasing the Father is traded for its pygmy cousin, the goal of pleasing men. It almost seems as if the greater demand for holiness Carson said, the greater opportunity for hypocrisy, end of quotes. That's a false teacher. But that's not all he says. He gives the motive of the true teacher. Look at it in 718. That's the false teacher. He speaks on his own authority, seeks his own glory. But, verse 18, and here's the true teacher. But the one, speaking of himself, who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus' motive is to seek the glory of the one who sent him. You say, what does that mean, Scott? It just means to honor him. His whole goal was to honor him. His whole goal was to glorify him. His whole goal in his teaching was to lift up the name and the reputation and the fame of, Jesus, of, of, of his father, who obviously in this case, and our goal is to lift up his fame, but he's lifting up and glorifying the very one who sent him. In fact, look back at John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, in verse 41 there, he just says in 40, 540, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then he said in 541, I do not receive glory from people. That's not why he was there. He would have never been crucified if that was his goal. Look over to John 8 for just a moment. In John 8, in verse 50, Jesus said there, he just very succinctly said, Yet I do not seek my own glory. And so here's a false teacher speaking lies and dreams and visions of the stuff that they come up with, whose singular motive is to make themselves look good, God has sent his son, and Jesus said, my desire, my motive is to honor and glorify the one who sent me. In fact, far from patting his own comforts, here's the true teacher. Jesus Christ came to be, not to be served, but to serve and to what? To give his life a ransom from many. 
He was never about himself. His motive in Philippians 2.6 is where it says he did not, you know, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's his desire. In fact, look at 18 again, 718. It's amazing. It's an amazing statement. But the one that's him who seeks the glory of him who sent him. And then it says this is true. And in him, there's no falsehood. He says of himself, of his own authority, of his motive, that he's true. Look back just for a moment in John 3, 33. I want to show you something there. There in 3.33, it says something there about God. Whoever receives his testimony, okay, sets his seal to this, that God is what? True. He's talking about you believe in the in the testimony of John, you believe in the testimony of the Baptist. You're setting your, sail to, your seal to him that God is true. What's fascinating is you go back to 718. It says that, 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 that he seeks the glory of him who sent him and he's true. And so here God is true in 333. And now in this statement Christ is true. Beloved, that what applies to God in terms of his character and his righteousness is now applied to Jesus Christ. Here's his motive. His motive is this. He was a man of truth, and beloved, there was nothing false about him. In fact, look at the end of verse 18. An amazing statement. It says, and in him there is no, what? Falsehood. In other words, there's no sin in him. There's no duplicitous motive in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin. But he, he knew no sin. He's the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And because he's the way and the truth, he, he knew no sin. And when you know no sin, there's no falsehood in him. There's no wrong motive in him. It says in Hebrews 4.15 that he was without sin. That we have a high priest in 726 who's holy and innocent and unsustained, separated from sinners. So, beloved, here's the implication. He was humble. He had nowhere to lay his head. He glorified the one who sent him. He is, the scripture would tell us, a true teacher from God. And his motive reveals that. Now, you might be asking at this point, here he is. His, his teaching is revealing his divine authority. How did they miss that? I mean, how do the crowds respond to this authority? How does it prove him even to be the Son of God? Well, what Jesus does next is explain why his hearers failed to recognize him. And so I take you from the motive of his teaching to the fourth defined distinctive. It's the challenge of his teaching that reveals his divine authority. The challenge. He, he challenges them. He challenges at us. Look what he says to them in 19. Jesus kind of gets on the offense here. He says, has not Moses given you the law? He said, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? 
he, he agrees with them. Has not Moses given you the law? Of course, they would have sat there as they heard him teaching in the temple that day. They would say yes, because the Jewish people and for the Jewish people, the law was the supreme embodiment of the will of God. They venerated Moses, and we saw that in chapter 5, and yet they do not obey Moses. You say, well, how so? Look again at verse 19. He says there to them, he says, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? In other words, you have the law. Moses gave you the law. You could reason that with them. Yet none of you keep the law as evidenced by the fact of your desire to kill me. Now, he must have not been talking about all the people who had gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles. But he was certainly talking about the inner motive of the Jewish leadership who in 7-1 wanted to kill him and who back in 5-18 wanted to kill him. And so he says, listen, here's the challenge. Look at verse 19. He said, none of you keeps the law. He said, why do you seek to kill me? Now, we both know, and the Jews certainly know, that the sixth commandment in Exodus 20, verse 13, said, you shall not murder. And they were murdering an innocent man who was true, and in him there's no falsehood. In fact, in six months from this point, the mob, though they might have been unaware of the Jewish leadership's intent, will shout to crucify him. And so Jesus says, you don't practice what you preach. I mean, this is what Paul told the Jewish people in Romans 2.24. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Paul said, for it is written, the name of God is or blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. They boasted in the law but didn't keep the law. And so he tells them this very bold challenge that he gives to them. He said, what did the crowd say to him? Well, look at verse 20. They answered, and it's the crowd that answered. They said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? In other words, I don't think they knew the whole crowd, if you will, all the intentions of the Jewish leadership, but what they're saying here at least is this, you're delusional, you're paranoid. Maybe some of you have heard that from unbelieving family members. But it may be more than just you're delusional and you're paranoid. It could be that some of them were saying you have a demon, and this is not new. In other places in the gospel, they said that he has a demon. In fact, in other places, in John 10, 20, they said he's insane. And so why listen to him was the thought. And so they say that he has a demon. And Jesus answers them. Now, what's interesting as we close this is rather than marshalling up lots of illustration to prove his point, our Lord just offers one illustration for them. And he actually answered them. They said, who says that? Why do you seek to to kill me and they say who is seeking to kill you look at verse 21 Jesus answered them I did one work and you all marvel at it now it's it's obvious that he's talking about the miracle of the man paralyzed for 38 years healed on the Sabbath look back just for a second in John chapter 5 he's obviously addressing this issue you remember when he came into the into the into the area of that time, and that man was standing there hoping that the waters would be stirred, if you will. And Jesus said to him in 5.8, get up, take up your bed, and walk. 38 years the guy had been in that condition. 
And you say, why 38 years? Because that's what it says in 5.5. There was a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. He gives him one command. Look at 5.9. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. And then here's the key point of the whole text. Now that day was the what? Sabbath. Oops. He healed that man on the Sabbath. In other words, he could have done a good work on the other days, but you can't heal a man on the Sabbath because when you heal a man on the Sabbath, you break the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day, what was the word? Holy. There's no work done on that day. There's no, there's no work that could be performed on that day. You couldn't gather food on that day. They had a meticulous law that you just couldn't do anything on the Sabbath day. You were to keep it holy. And now in chapter 5, he heals this man. He does a good work and he does it on the Sabbath day. You say, well, how did they respond? Well, look at 518. This is why the Jews, it says, were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so he breached the Sabbath, and so they begin to plot his death. And to show that their thinking was so fallacious, if you will, look what he said in 722. He's going to challenge them. Follow this argument. He says, Moses, in 22, gave you circumcision. Now, he puts this in a parenthetical thought. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. Just stop there. Moses gave you circumcision. And he says, well, parenthetical thought. He says, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. Actually, Moses didn't give it to you. You You were given circumcision by Abraham. You were given circumcision by Abraham in Genesis 17 in verse 2. So, but, but he says there, it didn't really come from you, but he says, look it, at the, end of 20, in, at the end of 22, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And so he says, you do that. He says, circumcision actually predates Moses. The fathers instituted it, but it would later be formalized in Mosaic law. And you circumcise that man. Do you see that phrase there? In 22, they, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So they have a conundrum here, okay? So what's the conundrum? Well, they got a problem. Let's say a child was born, all male children, you remember from Leviticus 12:3, had to be circumcised. Does anybody remember? On the eighth day. Every male, you, you get cut off from the nation of Israel if you don't circumcise that male child. And according to the law, you had to circumcise that child on the eighth day. If that circumcision on the eighth day fell on the Sabbath day, you now have a problem, do you not? You, on the one hand, have to fulfill the Mosaic law to circumcise that male child. But now you've got a problem You'd violate the fourth commandment if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath day. But the Jewish leader, conclu- the leaders over time in history concluded, listen, that it was permissible to go ahead and circumcise on the eighth day even if it fell on the Sabbath day. So in other words, it was permissible to break the Sabbath law of no work to circumcise the child in order to fulfill the law. So look what Jesus said to him. He said this in verse 23, powerful. If on the Sabbath a man 
receive circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. And then he says this. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body, he said there, or a man's whole body well. In other words, Jesus says, you see no wrong in breaking the law of the Sabbath by circumcising the male on the eighth day, yet you fault me for making a lame man well on the Sabbath. The argument is from the lesser to the greater. If the Sabbath could be overridden in order to carry out a minor surgery, how much greater is it to heal a man's whole body who was paralyzed for 38 years? See, they didn't understand this. They didn't understand Mark 2, 27, where Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. There he said in 2, 28, he said the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In fact, he went on to illustrate that in 3, 4 of Mark when he said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? And they were silent. They got so confused in their undertakings of keeping the minuscule relationships of the law that they forgot the bigger purpose to grant mercy and to provide redemption. In fact, Jesus would later say in Matthew 12, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value is a man than a sheep? He said, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so look how he closes this out. Our master teacher, by his challenge, says, do not judge, verse 24, by appearances. He said, but judge, he said there, with right judgment. He said, you're superficial. He said, you don't understand the law that you profess to revere and honor. And in that statement, he affirms his own judgment is righteous. And he declares that the judgment of his critics is not. And so he concludes his defense by saying, judge not according to appearances, but judge with a righteous judgment. And so here are, beloved, the four divine distinctives of his teaching that prove him to be the son of God. Here it is. It's the source of his teaching is God. The test of his teaching is those who follow and do God's will. The motive of his teaching is that it's God's glory and to honor him. And the challenge of his teaching is to truly practice the word which they, in fact, were not practicing. And here's the point, that his authority demands a response from you. What is the response? I mean, some people called him a good man. Good man. Other people earlier said, no, he's actually a deceiver. Some people in verse 40 said he's a prophet. Still others said he's possessed by a demon. But the question that I have for you this morning is, who do you say that he is? See, in other words, his words and his claims and his authority reveal who he is. The truth is, beloved, Jesus is God. He is exactly who he claimed to be. And the question would be is, how will you respond to his authority? And how will you respond to his claims? And the bottom line is he wrote this gospel that you may believe in him. He is who he said and nobody made the claims that he did. Nobody claimed to speak for God as he did. Nobody can say the words that he did. And so his words carried authority because they came directly from God the Father. 
And my heart for you, my own heart, is we need to submit to him. Amen? And we need to listen to him. We need to give heed to him. We need to hear him. And we ultimately need to obey him.